All right. Are you ready to get in the word today? Come on, say this after me. Say, I'm here. Not because I have to be, but because I want to be. Say, this is not a me thing. It's not a you thing. It's a Jesus thing. Say, I'm not perfect. Turn to that person sitting next to you and tell him, I know you got some issues yourself. Oh, yes, you do. Come on, say, we're not perfect, but we serve the one who is. Say, I love you, Lord. I thank you, Lord. I praise you, Lord. Help me not to leave like I came in Jesus' name. Now, if you believe that, put your 10-string instrument together today. Fantastic. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Revelation. We've been in this series called You've Got Mail. And I, I love this study that we've been in. It has been stretching me personally in my preparation and in my reading of the scripture. It has forced me to go to places that I wouldn't naturally go or normally go. I know revelation can be intimidating to some. Some Christians, you know, they, they have a hard time understanding all the imagery and there's kind of some beasts and some weird stuff happening. And what does that mean? Sometimes out of fear, we just avoid it. But I'm thankful to be a part of a church that is committed to go there. Can I have a good amen? And uh, this is a part of what God wants his people to know and be aware of. Specifically, we've been spending our time talking about the seven letters to the seven churches. There are seven churches that are mentioned in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And uh, if you were here last week, you heard from Johnny Baby Blue Eyes Green. Didn't he do a great job? I think we ought to show our love and appreciation for Johnny. He talked to us about the, the, the letter to the church of Thyatira. And, uh, man, we are gifted with so many great preachers and teachers and communicators. I feel so uh, honored to be a part of, of what God is doing in, in our church. You know, this is a letter to the, to the church of Sardis, the church of Sardis. If you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 3. And uh, let me give you some context about the city of Sardis. Sardis was the capital of the ancient Lydian Empire. It's currently in modern-day Turkey, but uh, this empire rose to prominence after the Babylonians had defeated the Assyrians. I think context is important. I'm not going to give you a lot of history, but I'll give you enough so you can appreciate and have a better understanding of what the message that Jesus is writing to this church, uh, of, of really what it means. And so the city of Sardis was the, was the capital city of the ancient Lydian Empire. It was uniquely placed on a mountain. In fact, it was actually in two locations. The original city was planted on the top of this mountain, and it served as a fortress. It was viewed as impenetrable, that nobody could ever conquer it because it was placed in such a high, lofty position of power. Um, but as the city began to grow, it grew down the mountain into the lower valley area below. And so you had Sardis originally on the top of the mountain, and then you had trickles of it down into the valley. Now, what's unique about Sardis, it was here that the modern concept of currency began. Many of you know in ancient times that whether you were buying or bartering or trading, you always used scales and, and you used gold and silver. For centuries, it was the, you, you placed something of value upon the scales. They would weigh it to see if its contents were pure. 
Um, and many of you know the Bible says God hates dishonest scales, right? So, you know, you had to be careful as you were bartering. If you brought something you thought was, you know, a big old solid rock of gold, if somebody was dishonest, they would weigh it and they wouldn't give you full value for it. Well, in Sardis, this is where they first began to discover techniques that would separate gold from silver so they could accurately uh, place value on how much pure gold was in an object. Uh, that way, there was no guesswork. It, it eliminated uh, bartering. And now, all of a sudden, in Sardis, you have the development of coins. In fact, the, the first coin was the Lydian Stater, S-T-A-T-E-R. You can Google that, look it up, the Lydian Stater. It was a gold coin. It was minted in Sardis, and it had the official royal stamp on it. It became the first currency in the world that was recognized by all governments, and its value did not change. So think about it. You're in a city that has minted coins. Now it's not weighing objects, but you know the value of it based on the coin that you give. This created worldwide financial revolution. Sardis was wealthy. Buying and selling and trading had been changed because of this Lydian stator, okay? So I think this is important as we step into this letter. Now we'll have a little bit better understanding of what God's telling the church that's placed in this city. Look at Revelation chapter 3, starting with verse 1. The Bible says this, write this letter to the angel of the church in Sardis. This is the message from the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. Again, we've talked about this. We've seen this in previous letters. Uh, don't get confused about sevenfold spirit. Uh, seven is the number of perfection, right? The number of completion. So sevenfold spirit is an indication of the Holy Spirit who is the fullness of God. And we talked about the stars representing the pastors or the leaders of these seven churches. Bible says this is the message from the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. Here's what he says. I know all the things you do and that you have a reputation for being alive. Somebody say reputation. But in fact, you're dead. Wake up. Strengthen what little remains. For even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. Here's what you do. Go back. Everybody say go back. Go back to what you've heard and believed at first. Hold firmly to it. Somebody say hold firm. Hold firmly to it. Repent and turn to me again. Say turn to me. If you don't wake up, I'll come to you suddenly as unexpected as a thief. Yet there are some in the church in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my father and his angels that they are mine. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. Can I have an amen for the reading of the word? You know, you read this letter and you understand the, the significance of the Lydian stater, that coin. 
and you, you, you know the history of the community. I, I think this letter, really, it, if we could read it through the context of authenticity, the major theme of the letter to the church at Sardis would be authenticity, authentic, what's real, what's not real. How many of you know we live in an age of counterfeits? Sometimes it's easy to be deceived. You, you think something is for real. You think someone is for real. But only after taking a closer look, a closer look you realize it not, it's not what you thought it was. You know, and I thought about even in our culture today. Sometimes we buy things and we, we acquire things we think that are authentic. Hey, this is the name brand thing. But then sometimes it's kind of the generic knockoff. How many know what I'm talking about? Okay, I got a few, a few pictures to show you to kind of help dial you in. And some of you may recognize the, these products. Some of you, you may own a few of them. Check out the screen, this first picture. See if you can see the, uh, the, sh- the shampoo. <laughs> a little oil of okay. Come on, somebody. Now, if you woke up this morning and you, you shampooed with that, God bless you. It's fine. No, no, no judgment here. Check out this next picture. Okay, you see what we're trying to do? Yeah, it's not Nike. I like that top right one. Hikey. <laughs> With the extra little hook in it. Or what about the bottom right one? That's my favorite. Mikey. <laughs> Look at this next one. It's hard to know. Generic or authentic. What is this? <laughs> Pumois. How many love to have a pair of Pumois? Yeah, it looks close. It's kind of close. And if you're not really dialed in, you may think it's the real thing. Look at the next pic. You got a little Sharpay, and then you got a little Shoopy. <laughs> a little Sharpy Shoopy. How many don't care the name as long as it writes? Yeah, okay. You can tell the difference there. Look at the next pic. Chanel made in Italia. Chanel made in France. How many of you can't tell the difference between the two? Which one is for real? Yeah, I, I don't know either. I don't know either. Okay, next pick. Yeah, they look the same to me. What about this one? Samsung and then Samsung. They look the same, don't they? Which one's the real one? Is it one on the right or left? How many say right? How many say left? How many of you are you're confused as I am right now? Okay, next, I don't know the right one either. Okay, check this out. There's your Rolex. Which one's the right one? The, yeah, the, the, the one on the right, that's your Rolex. The one on the left, that's your Folex. Come on, somebody. Okay, check out the next one. Okay, now can we talk for just a second, ladies? <laughs> I went there, did I not? Some of you started squirming right now when you saw, you reached down and you clutched that purse because you know. You went to New York, and you're in Chinatown. And the man whispered to you and said, come back here. And you look left, and you look right. Come on, somebody. If you got the real Louis Vuitton, God bless you. If you got the knockoff, then take the money that you saved and put it in the offering in Jesus' name. Look, there's no judgment here. I'm not judging anybody. Check this next one out. This is pretty cool. Which one is the real superhero? Which one is the real? How many think the one on the right is looking pretty strong? Oh, yeah. Rachel knows who's her Captain America. 
bring my shield strong at the house, baby. Okay, then the last but not least, now you're going to have to really, really dial into this last one. This could be a touch confusing, and it's, it's fooled a lot of people. Check out this last. <laughs> See, you got your, your Benjamin up at the top, your, your Mr. Franklin, and then you have your D.W. Franklin. Um, I'd like to have a few of those in my pocket. I told David, hang on to those D.W. Franklins. Maybe you can use them to buy a coach because y'all need a coach up in Tennessee. Come on, somebody. Just teasing, just teasing. The question, how do you tell an original from a counterfeit? You know, I heard a story recently about the Reverend Billy Graham. He and his wife went all the way to London to have a, a dinner with the royal family. And they're there in Buckingham Palace, and all these prestigious guests are around the table. And Dr. Graham and his wife were seated next to the the leader of Scotland. It was the former head of Scotland Yard, which is their version of the FBI. And as as they talked to this guy, they were fascinated uh, about what he did and found out that he was the uh, head of the Department of Forgery and Counterfeiting. And so they asked him about that life. What was that like? How can you, I mean, with all of the fake bills and all the imposters that are out there, you must have spent your entire life studying counterfeit money. And you know what his response was? He said, actually, the opposite is true. I discovered that if I were intimately familiar with the authentic bill, then I could recognize a counterfeit from a mile away. Can I have a good amen? And church, what God is saying to us, not just to the church at Sardis, he's saying, I want something authentic from you. There's a lot lot of counterfeits in the world, and you don't have to chase down a counterfeit. I just want to give you a true picture of what authentic Christianity looks like. If you're taking notes, I want you to jot down a few thoughts. Let's go through this letter again. He says, here's characteristics of authentic Christianity. Christianity. Look at what it says in verse one. He said, I know all the things that you do, that you have a reputation for being alive, but really you're dead. That word reputation just jumped off the page at me when I read it. Jesus is saying from the outside, you look for real, but on the inside, something's not quite right. If you're taking notes, write this down. Number one, Jesus wants us to live from the inside out. Not from the outside in. He wants us to live from the inside out. And this is a message that I think is very important for us as a church today. Because how many of you have discovered that your reputation is what everybody else thinks about you, but your character is what God already knows about you? And sometimes we'll sacrifice our character in order to uphold our reputation. Jesus says, if my people are going to walk in authenticity, it starts from the inside and it works its way out. You know, who I am on this stage is my reputation. Many of you know me as Pastor Mike, and that's my reputation here in this church and here to the community. But if you want to know my character, talk to my wife. Talk to my children. I think one of the biggest compliments anybody could ever receive is this. You're the same in public as you are in private. Who you are at home is no different than who you are in in front of others. And Jesus wants us to get back to authenticity. Too many times we're trying to fake it just to make it. Or we want to try to convince other people that we're at a place and maybe we really 
aren't. This is the danger of social media. And I love social media. I've got an account. But you know, you got to be careful of the pitfalls that social media carries because sometimes we'll project a certain level of life, show a picture, or we'll watch other people. Uh, It takes maybe, you start just five minutes scrolling through Facebook or Instagram and you start reading where everybody else is, watching what they're doing, watching what they just ate, watching what they just did, looking at who they're with, and you're thinking, man, I hate my life. I want to be you. And the, and the, the, the careful thing, we got to watch out that we're not so consumed with externals that we forget what matters most, and that's Jesus on the inside. How I many you know Jesus is on the inside and he's working on the outside? Too many times we're consumed with the outside and we've neglected the Jesus that's on the inside. Reputation, Jesus told the church at Sardis, from a distance it looks like you're alive, but when I look within you, I don't find life, you're dead. You know, be careful that you don't live for the opinions of man. You know, and and I'm telling you this, I'm preaching from a place of personal experience because for years I, I feel like I was... Uh, approval addiction is kind of the phrase. I was so consumed with the approval of others and I would work myself into a frenzy trying to please everybody else. Anybody know what I'm talking about? So caught up in other people's assessment of my life. And you know, if you're so consumed with the approval of others and you're trying to keep everybody else happy, you know what's going to end up? You'll be miserable and you'll forget the opinion that matters most, and that's God. You see, one day we'll stand before God, and we want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. It's his voice that matters most. Let me just encourage us today. If you have the favor of God, you don't need the approval of man. Come on, do you believe that today? Now, I say that, and I'm not saying to live recklessly or live without accountability. You know, there is a healthy covering in considering spiritual wisdom and authority. But you know what? At the end of the day, don't be in bondage to man's assessment of you. Live every day from the inside out saying, God, what is it that pleases you? And let me be about that. I remember a story I heard a while back of, a, of an older pastor. He had pastored for over 60 years. Same church he had pastored for 60 years. And so he was about to, to transition the church over to one of his sons in the faith. This young upcoming pastor, he called him into his office and he said, listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go out behind the church where the cemetery is, and I want you to find the gravestone of Mr. Jones. And I want you to go out to Mr. Jones's plot, and I want you to compliment him and say every nice thing you can think about him. Well, the young pastor's like, okay, that's kind of strange, but he did it. So he goes out to the back, and he's just encouraging him as a father. You were a great father, great husband, great leader in the community. So he comes back in, and the old man asks him, well, what did Mr. Jones say? And the young pastor said, nothing. He said, great. Now I want you to go back out to Mr. Jones and I want you to criticize him. I want you to say every negative thing you can possibly think of, even make up stuff if you have to. So the young pastor did, walked back to the same plot, said all kinds of crazy stuff, came back in and the pastor looked at him and said, well, what did he say? The young man said, same thing he said the first time, nothing. The old man looked at him and said, exactly. You've learned a valuable lesson. Until you can, you know, why, why didn't he say anything? Because the man was dead. 
He said, until you can die to both compliments and criticisms, you'll never be ready to lead this church. Because the truth is, in life, sometimes people will flatter you and fluff you. And sometimes they'll falsely accuse you and condemn you. But at the end of the day, what matters most is what God says over you. When you learn to live for an audience of one, then you've discovered living from the inside out. Paul said it this way in Galatians 1. He said, for do I now persuade men or God? Do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be the bondservant of Christ. The truth is this. When we live from the inside out, we'll have priorities and practices that other people may not always agree with. Sometimes your loyalty and allegiance to God will put you in conflict with other people. And Jesus is telling the church of Sardis, oh, listen, don't, be, don't gravitate toward a reputation. Stand firm in your integrity. Jesus looked at the disciples. I mean, uh, uh, he told the disciples as it relates to the religious leaders of the day. He said, don't be like the Pharisees. Don't, all the religious leaders of the day, they were so consumed with externals, with how loud they prayed, how long they prayed, with the robes of the rabbi that they carried. Jesus looked at those Pharisees and he said, yeah, you're beautiful on the outside, but on the inside you are full of dead man's bones. There is no life inside of you. And he challenged his disciples, look, pay attention to what I'm doing here. You know, when you live with nothing to prove, nothing to hide, and nothing to lose. That's freedom. When you've got nothing to hide, when you've got nothing to prove, and absolutely nothing to lose, Jesus says, live from the inside. No man owns you. Boy, I feel the Holy Ghost now. That's why I'm free on this stage to say what God has put in my heart, because no man owns me. I've surrendered my life to Christ. When he died on the cross, his blood was shed. He bought me with a price. And so my priority is to do and say what pleases him. Don't be owned. Don't feed your reputation and neglect your character. Jesus says, hey, from a distance, you look like you're alive, but you're really dead. Number one, live from the inside out. Then look at what it says here. Verse 2, he says, wake up. Come on, somebody say, wake up. Some of you had to, ooh. Oh, wake up, he said. Literally, he says, become a watcher. Number two, the second thing I want you to write down is this. Not only are we to live from the inside out, but number two, we're to live fully alive. Don't be lulled to sleep. You see, the church in Sardis, because they were living for externals, they had fallen asleep to what matters most. He says, wake up. Let me ask you this. Have you discovered that there is a process to falling asleep? How do you fall asleep? Well, first of all, you got to get still, like some of you are right now. Watch how this works. Watch how it works in the natural and see the spiritual connection. First, you got to get still. You stop moving. Second, you get comfortable. 
Mm-mm-mm. Some of you stopped doing what you used to do in Christ. You've neglected the disciplines of following Jesus, prayer and Bible study and worship. Some of the things you once did, you, you, you get still and then you get comfortable. And when you stop moving and you get comfortable, then you kind of surround yourself with darkness. Mm-mm-mm-mm. And then what happens? You just disengage. And you, I mean, time, you don't need, you lose track of time. How many have ever fallen asleep and then you kind of wake? Look, okay, I didn't say this in the first service. The other day, I was reading my Bible in my favorite chair. And I was reading my Bible and the words just, and next thing I knew, <laughs> with, how many have ever woke yourself up snoring? Oh, yeah, with a snort. I was like, and I wanted to make sure that none of the kids, that Rachel wasn't Oh, thank you, Jesus. Glory, glory, glory. I had straight fallen asleep. You know, it's amazing what happens in the physical when you stop moving, when you become comfortable, and then you surround yourself with darkness. You are lulled to sleep. And I know because I watch some of you. When I'm up here, you ought to see what I'm looking at out there. He's just nice and settled in. Hey, look, and I didn't share this in the, in the early service. This is so cool, but we got time now. I can remember the small church that I grew up in. There was a little boy named Wayne Smith, and Wayne sat with his dad on the front row because his dad was front row, hardcore. Little Wayne wasn't but eight years old. I, I think I was 10, and we watched Wayne Smith fight his sleep for about 15 minutes in church. How many thinks it's fun watching people struggle to stay awake? Oh, Yes. And man, my friends, we're laughing at him. What's the over and under? I bet he's going to be out in about 10 minutes. No, he'll be out in five in his little head. And this was back when we were sitting on wooden pews. Oh, yeah, one of these nice, comfortable chairs and, you know, stadium seats that we have now. And on the front row, his little head, and finally he just couldn't, he, he gave it up. And just his head went back, and boom, it hit that wooden pew, and it sounded like a shotgun. And man, three old ladies passed out, and the preacher buckled at the knee, and we thought the Holy Ghost had hit the church. <laughs> Revival, because Lil Wayne Smith fell asleep on the front row. Jesus is saying, wake up! Wake up! Listen, falling asleep is a process, but watch this. Waking up happens in a moment. Now, that's good news because some of you have been lulled to sleep over the weeks and months and years. Spiritually, you are in a stupor, and God's saying this is a moment to wake you up. It's dangerous if you go through life sleeping because you miss what matters most. Come on, could I have a better amen? You know, I think about when, when we were sleeping as kids, it was time to get up for school. Mama would come into the room. She would leave the lights out. She'd come and just sit on the side of the bed and just start tickling our arm. Come on, how many of you are thankful for Mama? She'd just come in and start tickling our arm and say, Mike, time to wake up and tickle our face. And I'm just, mm, I just get under those covers. I just want to stay snuggled on. Mama, can you give me five more minutes? But dad would come in. How many know dad had a different wake-up call? He wasn't tickling. He, he, he flipped them lights on. He'd rip those covers off. He'd be singing at the top of his lungs. Oh, what a beautiful morning. There's nothing beautiful about this. Where's mama? Give me mama. How many had a parent that would wake you up and flip the lights on? 
You know what God's trying to do to some of you today? He's trying to flip the lights on. He's throwing the covers back. He's saying, don't miss what's most important. Wake up. Wake up. The church in Sardis had been lulled to sleep. They were living for externals, and Jesus was trying to wake them up before they were to die. He says, from a distance, it looks like you're alive, but really you're dead. Wake up, he says. Look at what it says here, the second part of verse 2. He says, strengthen what little remains. For even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. Remember, the church in Sardis would understand these scales, the requirements. Hey, we did away with bartering. We have this coin, this currency that sets value. He's saying your actions are not equal to the requirements of my God. Strengthen what little remains. Here's the third thing that I want you to see. I want you to write this down. Number three, live for what matters. You've got a little bit of life left. Some of you have have lost so much. Let me tell you, I I sense the Spirit of God has a word specifically for somebody here this morning. I want you to hear what I'm about to say. Because some of you have lost so much in your marriage, in your family, in your relationship with your children. Some of you have lost so much in your job or in a dream or in a desire that God's placed in you. And you just have a little bit left. Hear the word of the Lord today. Don't look at what you lost. Look at what you have left and rebuild on that. Some of you are about to give up hope. Come on, if you believe that, put your hands together. The devil wants you to think that what you've lost is too much and you might as well give up. And Jesus says, no, strengthen what little remains. There is something there. And what remains is the seedbed of hope that you're going to need to turn this thing around. Live for what matters most. Don't wait for something tragic to begin to discover what's most important. You know, I thought about on December 3rd in 1997, I was involved in a car accident that nearly took my life. I was driving a 1988 Dodge Omni, a little hatchback, two-tone gray. I told you about it. That car was my dog. (laughs) Door handles were broken. Had to leave the windows rolled down just to reach in and get in. The the lining on that ceiling was resting on my head. Man, I love that little Omni. I was driving down Highland Road right about near near the country club when a big old dump truck pulled out in front of me. I got in a head-on collision with that truck. And a piece of pipe came through that windshield and caught me right between the eyes. And it ripped my nose completely off my face. All these fractures. Man, I've had reconstructive surgery and sinus surgery. and uh, I mean, Rachel's looking at me now. She's like, man, you looking good. Y'all didn't know that right there, huh? All this, like Mr. Potato Head, man, I had to put my nose back on my face. And I remember coming to in the hospital, and something was just, uh, it was off. I couldn't see anything. I could hear some things. I remember praying, Lord, don't take me just yet. Rachel was pregnant with Alexa at the time. I said, God, let me look into the eyes of my child. Please don't take me just yet. The second thing I prayed was, God, there's so much for you that's still in my heart that I feel like I'm supposed to do. Don't take me yet. And do you know I came up out of that experience with a new perspective on life. To live for what matters 
most. Don't wait for something tragic to happen. Don't wait for you to get a, a doctor's report. Don't wait for you to get served, you know, divorce papers in your marriage or, or for your children to end up in prison or, or broke down somewhere. Don't wait for things to get so bad before you realize what matters most. Jesus said there's still a little life there. Strengthen what remains. And if you'll pay attention to what's left, I'll start right there and I'll produce hope for the next steps of your life. Strengthen what little remains. Look at what he says. Let, let me wrap this up. He says, verse 5, all who live victorious will be clothed in white. I'll never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my father and his angels that they are mine. Let me finish by giving you this final thought. Number four, live like you belong to him. Live like you belong to Jesus. Hear me, you're in this world, but you're not of this world. Man, God's placed you here in this city on this day for such a time as this, but what God has placed inside of you, it's different than the world around you. He's saying, child, you belong to me. You're mine. You know, when you understand who you belong to, it changes things. I thought about this ring on my hand. This ring is a symbol of ownership. I belong to somebody. She belongs to me. The way that I lived when I was single is very different than the way I'm living now. Why? Because I know who I belong to. And when you understand the blood of Jesus marks your life, then you don't walk like, act like, talk like, think like everybody else. You are committed to a higher power. Your loyalty and allegiance belongs to him. Are you with me? He says, I'll never erase their names from the book. You know, in, in Sardis, like many cities 2,000 years ago, they carried a, they, they call it the book of citizenship. It was a registry that held the name of every occupant in that city. But they would erase it on two occasions. If you died, they would scratch your name out of that book. Or if you acted unworthy, they would scratch your name out of that book. And yet Jesus says this, if your name is in my book, I'm not erasing that. You know why? Because you belong to me. You belong to Jesus. And I think God would remind some of us today, hey, don't worry about externals. Pay attention to the inside. Wake up. Wake up before it's too late. Live for what matters most because you were bought with a prize. You see, I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. My decision has been made. I've stepped over the line. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed, my present makes sense, and my future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame visions, mundane talking, chintzy giving, and dwarf goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotion, or popularity. 
I don't have to be right, be first, be tops, be praised, be recognized, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by presence. I love by patience. I lift by prayer, and I labor by power. My face is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions are few, but my God is reliable, and my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, be compromised, be turned back, lured away, detoured, distracted, deluded, discouraged, or dismayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, let up, slow up, or shut up till I preached up, prayed up, paid up, stored up, and stayed up for the cause of Christ. I will go until he comes. I'll give until I drop. I'll preach until I'll know, and I'll work until he stops. And when he comes back to receive his own, he will have no trouble recognizing me. My colors will be clear. Belong to Jesus. Come on, if you belong to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, would you stand to your feet? Come on, everybody standing. Everybody standing today.